We've not had a former DWM editor on Something Who before. He's just a man. He's just a normal man. Just an innocent man. How can he be? He can't be. He is. He can't be. He's not possible. Hello, all. Oh, look. It's oh. Gary. Hello, Gary. Hello, Gary. Yeah. Hi, Gary. So, we're recording an actual podcast. But what's it made of, a podcast? It's got to be made of stuff. I mean, like jam's made of strawberries. So what's it made of? Well, not strawberries. No, not, not this podcast, anyway. Usually a pair of Doctor Who stories. Ah, one from the old series and one from the new. And we can go anywhere. Well, within reason. Well, I say reason. So we could go backwards in time. Right back to the start. Well, uh, almost the start. We have already done Unearthly Child. And forwards in time? Well, no further than the present day. And you wouldn't want to see that Sea Devils one again. So where do you want to go, Ray? And what do you want to see? Well, you know when someone asks you for your favourite story and straight away you forget every single story you've ever watched? No, uh, totally not. Well, it is a thing that happens. Have you not seen them since the original broadcast either? Well, actually, there is a story I've never seen. Great. Once you've found the disc... Just press play. Okay then, ladies, brace yourselves and welcome to the Rings of Akaten. There's another one I do that's um. There's another one I do that's made of strawberries, but uh, <laughs> it never really took off. Is that your jam? <laughs> <laughs> I've never said chaps in my life. I'm not intended to. Say. That's fine. No, it's <laughs> perfectly fine. I think that was it, pretty. It, I think that was pretty good, and I'm glad that Gav got in the um. Normal, innocent <laughs> men. Um, Paul, Paul looked thoroughly confused. I was, tr- I was oh, trying to work I've out. How s- on the I was trying to work out how to get it in there. It passed <laughs> me by. Go on, somebody explain. It just occurred to me at the moment I saw it. I don't know what that is. Just improvised genius by me. Right. I think we honoured the text, as as Louise Jameson would say. I think. <laughs> yes, <laughs> she did. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like you were there on Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> as I often say, it's not Shakespeare. There we go. Neither is Cymbeline, apparently. <laughs> is that a topical gag? Yeah, sorry. Neither right, is Cymbeline. Okay. Neither is Cymbeline. Apparently, there's a there's a story today. It's a Shakespeare stole the plot story, but then Shakespeare stole all of his plots, so I don't quite know why they're oh, making dear. a big deal of it. He won't steal either of these two. This is all staying in, isn't it? <laughs> Welcome to the podcast where we take something old, a Doctor Who story from the original series, compare it with something new one from the new series, and add something borrowed, that sketch, to make something who. Hello, I'm Richard. It's been a few weeks since the last one, but we're back with Something Who podcast, and for episode 59, we're off to 1959, well, as well as 1981, as we discuss a couple of Doctor Who stories with musical content. First, we'll chew over seventh Doctor story Delta and the Bannerman from season 24, and after that, we'll examine 11th Doctor story, Rings of Akaten, from the second half of Series 7. And with me to sing their praises or chorus our disapproval, mm-hmm. we have a great lineup: 
headed up by our special guest, former DWM editor Gary Gillett, who's still a leading light in the magazine editing game, as far as we understand it. So welcome to Something (laughs) Who, Gary. (laughs) Thank you. As far as I understand as well. Yes, I'm hanging on in there. Uh, Thank you for having me. But look, Gary, it's it's fantastic to have you with us. And it's also uh, pleasing to know as you told us, that, that you have actually listened to the podcast before you came on it. Oh, many, many times. Yes, yes, it's it's a favourite. I, I never used to have much patience with podcasts <laughs> because you always had someone eating crisps partway through. <laughs> but this one was always 100% crisp-free, so I uh, I always enjoyed yeah. it for that. The content is terrible, but, but the lack of crisps is, uh, is certainly refreshing. Excellent. It's because Richard, Richard puts in 18 hours of editing on, yeah, yeah, yeah. in order to remove the sandwich munching crisps. It, it, it was all worth it. Okay, and next up is science and astronomy writer Giles. So, hi Giles. Hello, long time no see. Yeah, indeed. So, so I was in Truro on holiday a couple of weeks ago, and in uh, Waterstones in Truro, they had three copies of your Stargazer's Handbook. Oh, good so Obviously, it's a, it's a top seller in Cornwall. <laughs> Well, they've got good skies down there. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Okay, I'll have to check with them and get him residuals from Cornwall. <laughs> and then we've got 3D artist, writer and researcher Gav, who we borrowed from Dalek 63 to 88 about a year or so ago and somehow forgot to return. <laughs> Hi, Gav. Hello. You all released me back into the wild at some point, won't you? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> we get such good listening view- uh, figures, though. And uh, and finally, it feels like ages since the last one for most of us, but it's even longer since we've had the full team on the podcast. So welcome back to writer, raconteur and missing episodes <laughs> podcaster, Paul. Um, hello. Hello. Uh, I hope you've got a... Well, I'm just going to come straight out and ask. How many copies of my Big Finish CDs did you see in Truro? <laughs> uh, I... Was it more or less than three? That's all I care about. <laughs> Uh, I, I have to say, I didn't specifically look in the big sh- finished shelf. Huge so, piles uh, in the works of of Council of War, starring John Levine as Sergeant <laughs> Benson. Almost certainly. Uh, it's entirely my fault that we haven't been together for a couple of months. I mean, I had a, a fairly heavy schedule in February, putting together a bunch of podcasts, and then caught COVID in March, and uh, as a result, um, couldn't really face doing anything until about now. But uh, anyway, we're back together and l- looking forward to it. Equally, if you were expecting us to talk about Sea Devils, then I'm afraid we decided that everyone was going to be talking about Sea Devils right now. By the time hours came out, you'd be sick of them, so we've done something different. And, and maybe there will be a time we talk about Sea Devils, but it's not now. I was sick of them a lot sooner than that, I tell you. <laughs> Had the credits rolled, yeah. <laughs> Would you have enjoyed it more if it had been ten minutes longer? Probably well, you know, it depends. I was cursing the director, and I gather the prevailing thought is that the editor was to blame. The director wasn't completely incompetent, hadn't failed to get any coverage, but had got the stuff, the required shots, and then had them cut out for no particular reason by a mad <coughs> axe wing <laughs> pair of scissors. That, I don't that's know. a bizarre suggestion of, of yeah. zero oversight, <laughs> that it was handed to the editor and then no one saw it till they press play on the well, day it, of broadcast. Gav, it happened the last time that they had a <laughs> did a pirate story. If you <laughs> <don't> <laughs> yes. yeah, it's tra- yeah. it's traditional. They all get drunk on rum and um just <laughs> guard it with a, a slice them through the uh <laughs> <laughs> take the razor blade. Yeah. Yo ho ho in a bottle of razor blades as you say, yeah. <laughs> okay. So instead 
we're going to talk about Delta and the Bannerman. Mm. Written by Malcolm Cole, uh, directed by Chris Clough. And perhaps we'll talk about how we all came across it. I mean, for me, November 1987 was my first term at university. And my friend David Matthewman had a TV and VCR. So that was essentially um, how I saw it. I think David's still on the fringes of, of um, Phantom. I heard his name uh, mentioned by um, Toby Haydoke on, on one of his podcasts. Has he meant, is he related to Scott Matthewman? Uh, I, I wouldn't know. Okay. What are the old fandom families last two generations <laughs> <laughs> handed on from generation to generation? <laughs> Afraid. But, but if, 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 <laughs> if, if, if anyone knows, then, then, then don't hesitate to tell us. Don't hesitate to, to, to jump in, one of you. Oh, I, thought you I thought you were rambling to the end of a story about VHS copies. No, no, that was it, ah, I'm afraid. Okay. I was eight years old, I barely remember it, and my dad and I must have both thought it was rubbish because we taped over the ones that we didn't like. So it would have been sacrificed for something better like Silver Nemesis, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I can remember that, that risk. We could, at this point, I was 16, at this point we could afford tapes to record the whole season, but in previous years you had to play the the sort of risk mm. game where you went, oh, you'd read the the little write-up in the magazine and think, is this one going to be better? And you'd take the lottery and you'd you'd take your copy of Caves of Androzani and... and wipe it over with Attack of the Cybermen <laughs> and, then you, and then you turn around there was no going back but for Delta yeah I was I was 16 and I think with a lot of people around that time there was just such an immense sense of relief that it wasn't what we'd had the year before that there was a sense of kind of hope and a sort of freshness to it and that's not about Sylvester and Colin I think it's that shift from Eric Sayward era into this sort of new way of looking at things and mm. and and it just felt so cheerful I, I do remember the radio times listing for it though mm. which said something like the doctor and mel are searching for rock and roll and adventure what they get is delta and the bannermen <laughs> <laughs> which, which i always think about yeah i would have been yeah 17 i guess and watching it live because i didn't this was I was audio audio taping things at the time, huh. uh, rather than yeah I didn't have a VHS until until oh, after the old series yeah after the old series ended actually I'm not sure whether that was deliberate that was on the part of my parents but they decided okay <laughs> it's over now we can get it. happy with telesnaps around now those, we... those. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah very much the same as you Gary that I remember feeling uh, season twenty four I felt okay. We kind of heard some rumblings of what was happening, and we knew that there was there'd been trouble at the start, and time in the Rani was a bit of a bit of a hangover. And then I kind of held my breath for Paradise Towers as being the brave new world, and was at the time somewhat disappointed, and it, I think embarrassed by the Kangs and that stuff. And then this one came along, and yeah, it's it's wobbly, but it's it all kind of clicked into place for me. And I thought, hang on, yeah, there's something. This is good. This is fun. Hmm. It's like they turn the lights back on. Mm. And it's just, you know, it's not behoven to, you know, this huge dead weight of continuity where everything has to be linked to something from 1967 or whatever. Mm. Paul? I probably admitted this when we did Paradise Towers, but I'll, 
I'll say it more briefly because I'm even more embarrassed. I didn't. I was the same age as, as Gary and Giles, but, and, but I, I wasn't as mature. I didn't quite, I didn't quite appreciate um, what Mr. Cartmel was doing at the time. I wasn't foaming at the mouth and um, writing letters to my MP and calling in to Patty Caldwell and all that sort of thing. But I think I was, I was open to it. I was open to underst- <laughs> seeing that this was a brave new world and that it was several thousand times more interesting than the heated over pastiche of the, <laughs> of the glory years that we'd had uh, immediately previously. But I didn't quite see it at the time. I remember thinking that each story in season 24 was an improvement on the last one at the time, which I do not think now. No. So I must have... That's probably more a sign that I was warming to it, I think. Mm. Let's, be, let's be kind to 16-and-a-half-year-old me. I think mm. this is the one I'd, I'd be more inclined to return to. I, I confess, I even though I bought the season 24 Blu-ray, I hadn't really cracked it open uh, until watching <clears> it for this, in quite the same way I rushed to the other ones. But it would be this I watch first. It's just the fresh air of it, really. And there's something about whose story is shot in the summer, which which is very much the kind of who of my childhood. Those that that shift in the Tom years after season twelve into sort of shooting in the summer. So you get kind of Android invasion and Androids mm. of Tara and other Android related <laughs> stories <laughs> with with trees in. Mm. All those things, uh, it always had had that kind of vibe, and then it kind of plunged back into a sort of winteriness again, with Colin, and 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 here we sort of return to summertime, and and clearly the cast are having an absolute ball away for kind of three weeks, and this this sort of jolly, on Barry Island, and that really comes across. So yeah, even then I kind of felt like oh, <laughs> someone's enjoying themselves making this program. Mm. It's funny, if you want a Doctor Who story shot in the height of summer these days, you have to wait for the Christmas special, don't you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you, you get weird, creepy version of it, like in Amy's Choice, where they're trying to do it, is, and, and, and there's like really obviously stuck-on plastic plants around the doors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't work that well, but I suppose that's maybe part of the dream scenario of that, maybe. <laughs> or maybe not. Anyway, I digress. Yeah, so I, I had form with holiday camps in the 1980s because um, so at some point I went to um, Pontins in Prestatin for a brass band contest. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't look like this particular holiday camp is, is all that well maintained at the point at which they're doing the filming. I, mean, I think someone's gone around and, and, and done a sort of sort of slap of paint around the place, but it definitely looks a little bit rough around the edges. And which is a definitely lawnmower, my, apparently. Yes, it's, <laughs> yes. It, it, it's my it's my memory of of, of Prestatin is that it, it it was you know it wasn't all that splendid. But then I mean I think I guess that these things were put up in the fifties and they were fantastic in the fifties for um, for working families and and you know maybe by the eighties uh, they hadn't had a lot a lot of love lavished on them in a, in, in a couple of decades. Do you know the Larkin poem Sunny Prestatin? I don't. Oh, I'm not going to recite it now. Everyone, go away. And look it up. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Add that in the liner notes when this is released on the. Box yeah, set yeah. form. I think the holiday camp is quite the the whole of the location feels like an, an extra, like a, a big part of the character of the piece. It's almost a star of it. I think mm. that, that it it couldn't work if they didn't have that very real place. And and I think they found it just on the cusp of even that was about to be transformed to a more modern mm. I was thing. Say so they had a feeling they were 
revamping is all about to. Yeah, you get things like that laundry room scene where it's absolutely piled high with sheets in plastic bags that that, that no one would dress that set mm. in that way. So it, it feels really sort of convincing, and 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 those scenes, particularly in part one, are kind of really well well shot. All of part one, I, mm. I think, is particularly. Mm strong it's got this sort of massive cast and it gives them all a little bit and sort of nudge mm. nudge nudges everyone sort of closer in but it's after they kind of arrive in that that kind of frames the entire piece and and they use it very well i think mm. it's strange that they allowed <clears throat> they commissioned a script which was so heavily dependent on such a specific real world location as i mean the first of their all location stories you know they didn't even have a history of doing that sort of production did they before so yeah. it's Interesting that he took a bit of, bit of a punt on it. I bet the J&T knew a bloke, sounds like him. <laughs> he'd, he'd, he'd know the bloke who ran it, got it sorted out. Isn't it quite a late decision to split it, to split the production of these two three-part stories into all studio and all location? It's not even, they weren't even commissioned that way, were they? I think the late decision was that Studio One was going to be the comedy one and the location was going to be a big, serious adventure. And as they were working on the scripts, they, they both sort of skewed the other way and so ended mm. up sort of swapping them round. So this ended up as, as a big sort of comedy chase, whereas the, the real earnest drama was saved for uh, the dragon <laughs> fire. The real study of the human condition was uh, was held back for the season finale, mm. my understanding. Yeah. But they were faffing about over who would be the companion, of course, Yes. Mm. Really, up until the going into studio on Dragonfire, though they must have decided before that because because they didn't record a joining scene with Ray, did they? No. They could have gone back and done a Fraser Hines on it, presumably. Yes, yes, they could. They only needed to step inside the doors of the TARDIS, and they could have tacked it onto the. Yeah. Be- mm. Because the TARDIS scenes as well were shot with Dragonfire, weren't, weren't they? He says suddenly pulling this information oh, yes. from mm. <laughs> <laughs> nowhere. So there you go. What did we make of Ken Dodd? What did we make of Ken Dodd then and Ken Dodd now? Well, I was against it, I would say, in 1987. <laughs> I, I didn't really think that there was any place in the universe for Ken Dodd. But now, it, I, I think it's all right. I mean, I wish I wish they'd bothered to put a, lot, a light on him when he's walking up because he, he's sort of, you know, that... Him being so much in shade, you can hardly see who he is until he turns. I mean, maybe there's maybe there's a, well, there's a, there's a method in that, but it it seems it seems a bit odd. One of the few nice shots is when he's in profile, and blows the um the party streamer thing, and you can see it pop out in shadow. Right. Because mm. I don't mean to be quite so dismissive there with the rest of it, but uh, but that that justifies having him in in shade, Richard. So no, I, I'm afraid I do not accept your point. <laughs> <laughs> I remember being somewhat horrified, I think, when the Kalsty was announced. But I think, and I think I thought at the time, that it's it's fine, it's perfect casting for for the part, as written and as played. So I've never had a problem with it since it aired. It's interesting that on the season 24 Blu-ray, Sylvester McCoy suggests that Ken Dodd made a mess of it, but actually viewing it just the other day I thought it was fine mm. so I, I'm not quite sure how could he have done about. it differently we should ask our yeah. resident Liverpudlian yeah. you're not in Naughty Ash are you <laughs> not even Liverpudlian <laughs> well near as when I was 8 I received all my opinions from Paul Jenkins hi Paul if you're listening uh, he was a couple of years <laughs> older he won't be listening 
<laughs> and uh, he said it was a dreadful idea and a terrible thing and a travesty. I don't Be- remember beforehand. Or... Beforehand, yeah. Once, once yeah, you've yeah. seen it and you see that he plays it exactly as written, it's written. I mean, it's not necessarily written as a guest star part, is it? But it's written as a flamboyant part. So you either hire Laurence Olivier and tell him to play it like that, or you hire somebody who has that naturally. I mean, watching it this weekend is fine. It's absolutely, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. I assume there's younger fans who'd be finding this story now, and Ken Dodd hasn't been a presence mm. in the background of their TV lives. And he'll mm. just seem like any other kind of quirky guest character. But yeah. I, I, it's, it's a shame watching now that they didn't cut against his TV persona. I think he, he would have been an interesting choice to play almost any other character in the thing. Gavrock. Tessie Moore. Gavrock. Gavrock. He'd been an excellent Gavrock, spitting that meat mm. at, at them <laughs> yeah. through his teeth. Or the Shimmeron Child. The Shimmeron Child <laughs> in a baby form. Um, mm. But Burton, I think Kendall would have been great at that. Yeah, yeah that could work. Oh, yes. Wee, I think he would have been a very enigmatic mm. thing. Mm. When when they had this star casting at the start with John Nathan Turner, he he sort of cast against type. He got the yeah. stars in, but you get someone like Harris Hughes as a scientist, mm. and that Brilliant. always worked Girl well. Need. But so. by this point, he gets them. He casts them, but he casts them exactly as they are. Mm. And that's when I, I think that's what always kind of chased because you you just feel it's it's Ken Dodd. Yeah. But then they shoot him in the back. <laughs> they, they, they take, which is definitely against type if if he's cast to type the main thing that doesn't generally happen with Ken Dodd is he's not shot in the back <laughs> live from Her Majesty's with an agonising scream <laughs> which is a bold a bold choice and the start of quite a heavy death toll of mm. of mm. likeable characters of very sayward mm. level stuff but done in a sort <laughs> yeah. of you almost don't don't notice because you're on to the next kind of breezy bit. Mm. There's not much emotional repercussion from the deaths of everyone on the bus. I always find that a bit jarring. I, I gather there were a few lines that were cut. There was some more in Sylvester's speech. I, I did anybody watch the extended version on the Blu-ray set? I thought I, maybe I should, and then I couldn't uh, be bothered to get up no, and no. get it off the shelf, so I watched it on BritBox instead. Yeah, which I, was, I don't like extended a, versions. I'm against <clears> them. <throat> I don't know. <laughs> I was going to talk about the bus bit. Can we? We don't do this in order, do we? So I can leave it. No, no, that. go ahead. I mean, for my money, at, at the time, the one thing I didn't like that. I thought it jarred with the tone of the rest of the piece, and of course it does. That's the point. But I didn't think it did it in the right way. I thought it was the wrong sort of jar. I thought it was too much and not earned and not dealt with. Mm. You know, <laughs> so I mean, on every on, from every angle. It didn't really work for me. And it's a, it's a scale of villainy that dwarfs his ultimate goal because his goal is to kill one person, yeah, and yeah. and often in these situations, if a lot of people have to die in the process of defeating this villain, then fair enough. But in this case, more people died as a consequence of all the mucking about than if he yeah. just succeeded in his plan to yeah. get this one person. So it doesn't feel like a justified sacrifice in terms of the story. It's the worst thing that happens in the story. Mm. Well, well, not only that, That's very true. right? But but he has a he has an opportunity to nail her in the first five minutes of, of the thing. <laughs> Does he? he just Is that wa- in the extended <laughs> version? <laughs> Sorry, he just looks at her and talks to her for about two or three minutes, mm. and then falls out of the spaceship. So, I mean, you know, if, if he was really hell bent on killing her, he's got all the option opportunity that he needs very early on, but doesn't take it. She's yeah. also got away. At, at one point in the story, and the doctor 
takes her oh, yes. right back into the jaws Good of point. death and then goes, yes. oh, crikey, yeah. does a U-turn on the moped. It's it's an odd aspect of the thing that, 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 that we don't get the backstory to the Bannerman's mm. hatred of the Shimmeran at all. Mm. Uh, there's nothing. They just seem like evil thugs. I, I assume it's all in, in the book and was worked out beforehand. There were scenes dropped, yeah, that it was written that the Bannerman had polluted their planet and wanted the Shimmeron planet which was this lush garden world and eradicating the Shimmerons was important in order for them to take over it I just thought they hated really bad ac- actors and were determined <laughs> to hunt down every every last one and stop new ones being born <laughs> but it, it's hard to see where they would have had the info dump but it's yeah. odd there's, there's more of an explanation about how honey is made <laughs> yes. And how the bees live. And, and I suppose it is supposed to be like, ah, because you see they're like bees. We see, you understand, you're, mm. you're subtle. But, but you get nothing. So he's, he's, just, he's, he's just this bully who comes crashing about. And if Gavrock and Helter are the kind of equal and opposing forces, unfortunately, they're not equal and opposing in terms of performances. Mm. So, <laughs> so it doesn't quite, uh, yeah. quite come off. Yes, Billy's mad. What on earth? Why would on earth would he pass that ray for for oh, Delta? Quite. She's she's. I've been quite upset about that. I don't. Personal, but Billy is very odd. I've got stuff to say about him, but I'm not sure we're uh, before we before <laughs> we, we leave that bit with the bus. Yeah. Then before we leave the bus, I have something else yeah, to say. On. Which again, it may turn out this was a fever dream, but I I think somebody on the Blu-ray set says that it was JNT who suggested killing, uh, blowing it up, and killing off all those people, because he thought the story was a bit light on whatever, threat, <laughs> violence, darkness. He thought it could do some, or just our action, whatever. He thought it could do pepping up a bit, and he suggested it. Uh, I can't remember who mm. says that or where. I didn't dream it. So maybe he was missing Eric. I saw, it is the sort of thing Eric would have done, isn't mm. it? It's odd as, as well, he, because because there's loads of children there as well, and there's a second bus, in, because, because there's humans there mm. already, and the... And our holidaymakers arrive, and they're all sort of mixed up. But there's no children that are exterminated on that bus, is, is there? No baby. They're all just they're all just big I purple blobby things. So big purple yes. blobby things from the tripolar and never. In fact, perhaps they could have kept it in the tone of the rest of the story. Would have loads of purple guns spray across everyone when it exploded. <laughs> <laughs> but... It would have taken very little for them to have sort of had a sort of line because they're not humans and it's established that they can shape change and that sort of goes nowhere. <laughs> they could have done something to escape if they'd wanted to not have all these corpses on their, their hands. But it's, it's, it's got a very high death death total. I think I think there's a compromise there. You, if you could have killed, killed off one person that we like at that point yeah. and let the rest of them escape and that would have achieved whatever aim he was going for. But it is mm-hmm. it's Eric Saywoody and these characters have nothing left to contribute. I mean, there is a problem there. It's not the one that J&T thought it was, that it needed some more action at that point. Mm-hmm. It's the problem that you've got a load of characters that suddenly have nothing left to contribute to the plot. So mm-hmm. Attack of Sidemen style, you just off them because you mm-hmm. can't think of anything better. It is part of the great thing about part one is that there is so many extras in it, how inhabited yes. it feels compared to the old show and compared to the new show where, where, where they're mm. in the centre. It's, it's, it's really full. The party scene feels like a, a party. There's people running mm. everywhere. And, and, and the whole thing has this like company production feeling, sort of summer show. There's these sort of eager young cast and these older turns. It feels like that sort of 
seaside specials thing mm. going on. It just needs like a knife throwing act or something <laughs> to sort of. It's 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 it, it's got that. It's got a real life life to it. It feels inhabited. Well, Yvonne and Barry Stewart Hargreaves, because it's yeah. it's funny they don't make more of the yellow coats really. I mean, I suppose we have one speaking yellow coat part, but given the Heidi mm. yeah. reference, but it would have just been too. It would have been too crowded, wouldn't it? I guess. There's a lot in there, and there's, if there were four parts, they could have done everything justice. It's, I mean, mm. I'm never going to complain about something having too many ideas. Well, yeah. all right, maybe I probably will one day, but you should <laughs> remind me I said that when I do. And, now, I really like the early part of the story, and I feel like it's a shame. I also think some of my other problems with it, I don't want to fall into the tra- trap of rewriting it into what I would have done, but I think if it had been... The story gets more enclosed in terms of the characters as it goes on, and if it had stayed enclosed in terms of location, the big digression to Garongwe's mm. house in part three... It's completely irrelevant. It yeah. doesn't go anywhere. And so if we'd if we'd ended up trapped mm. in the holiday in the holiday camp, maybe if we'd had more zooming around the countryside early on and and end up more focused. That's what I was going to say. For me, it peaks at the end of episode one. That's when it it's got all its ingredients in the in the right places. The potential is there, and there are scenes that are warm and charming, and the dance is lovely and then mucking about in the laundry room. That should have been the whole story. It should have been, I don't want to say base under siege, but fundamentally, siege. it's then polluted by all of these disparate ideas that the, the Sputnik satellite and the bees and the the psychic bees. Mm-hmm. So I get increasingly frustrated from the, the opening of episode two onwards. Well, it's, it's also about physically moving the people about because Gavrock arrives at the camp just as the Doctor and Delta and, and everyone else are moved over there mm. and then Gavrock gets there they sort of lead them on a, a wild goose chase and they get there just as the doctor and everyone comes back to the camp and that's basically all that happens mm. there's, there's a sort of mm. spare space on the board which is the the beekeeper's house yeah that mm. they just travel around to, to get back to, to something that could have happened in part two yeah and the big the big problem is also because it's a three it's quite compressed. We end up with two big set pieces, one after another. There's a the first big set piece against where well, they set a trap for the yeah. bannermen. That's the weirdest yeah. thing. Yeah, I'm covered in bees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They they take them somewhere. Yeah. They're not traps in the house, and this is a desperate yeah. plea to escape with their lives. <laughs> they set a deliberate trap, then hide behind a wall and watch it unfold, and then go off and do exactly the same thing again in the location where the mm. first one should really have been. That's it. It should have been like the A-team in the setting traps in and around the holiday camp, like you're saying, getting the yellow coats involved. They they wanted to stand the ground and help, and it was a big build-up to a thing that mm. then didn't happen, and what happened is you send the players out into these other bizarre situations, and then you've got to spring to Americans from their bindings, and you've got to drop 10,000 jars of honey on mm. Gavrock as he comes in, and it's all these weird sort of threads that... So it's full of ideas, but they're all in the wrong order. Perhaps it's because he started with the bees and the honey... And then the mm. holiday camp came later. So mm. even though mm. he's writing for the whole, whole holiday camp, he's desperate to get to his bees and honey, and he can't think <laughs> of a way to, to have a bee, a beekeeper. He's got his the... metamorphosis theme, hasn't he? Yeah, and and so he's desperate to get get over there. It could have been achieved with a much lighter touch without Garonwe basically lecturing to camera about metamorphosis whilst the bloke is sucking his green metamorphosis juice. I found all the bees 
stuff too heavy-handed and too clumsy and it, i get that you know once once as a writer you've got an idea and you want to keep it but i think sometimes the ideas that start you off become a burden to what you end up with and i think it would have been a better story with that gone yeah you could also argue that you could argue that hawk and weissmuller are in in their entirety fall into that category because they don't really they are completely sidelined for mm. aren't they a fairly late addition for comic relief anyway I believe. Well, that's the note. That's the note I've made. They're comic relief, but the story is a comedy. So why mm. was? Do they are they from an earlier draft when the story was straight and they were the they needed a light relief? The story was originally set in 1957, and one of the plot lines was that the Americans had beaten mm. the Russians into space. Yeah. And then the date was moved to 59, which made it post Sputnik. Mm. So that plot line became redundant, but the two American characters looking for their cutting edge secret satellite were retained so it's again it's another redundant element it just needs a bit of that satellite to have been used in the mm. speakers <laughs> at the end yeah a bit of i'm just yeah. looking for a, i'm just so looking for a transmitter it. that's strong enough to go yeah. with the speaker that's strong oh, enough. And, well, and that we, we, we're nearly there. We've nearly turned this into a <laughs> stone cold classic. Get my hands on part four, and I'll be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Ready they they go. also turn up too early. They there's. Hmm. It reminded me of Silver Nemesis, where there are lots of characters that we keep cutting between, who um, are there throughout. Oh, yeah. this is way superior, though. Isn't but I mean, it? they it's it ends up being more than a little contrived that they they're already in Wales, for no. <laughs> For no particular reason, and then the satellite just happens to fall there. When they, if they'd turned up after it had already crashed, I mean, it's not. I don't imagine many people are worried about that, but it's just a slight untidiness that niggled me when I was looking for things to complain about. So, as I gather it, they moved it from fifty-seven to fifty-nine because they said, "Oh, there's more rock and roll mm. they could use if they set it in fifty-nine," which a shows a unusual respect for chronology. <laughs> <laughs> And B, I was looking through the. I had the production subtitles on as I was watching it on the um, on the DVD version. Actually, I completely forgot that I had the Blu-ray in the in a cupboard somewhere. And so far as I could see, I I could not. Every song that they put up seemed to be fifty six, fifty seven, or older. <laughs> and I thought, well, I, I I haven't actually seen anything from fifty eight, fifty nine in terms of the in terms of the absolute classics like Rock Around the Clock and things like that are all are all in time for there. You think oh, I don't see quite what the justification was in there and especially if they'd done it in 57 you'd have had also the back to the future <laughs> tie in more because there's a bit of a pastiche of like well there's a reference to that isn't there and it's full of references to and it's funny that of course it went out in november 87 yeah so just hard on the heels of the 30th anniversary of the, of the space age the sputnik launch was in october so there was i remember there being some some palaver for 30 years of the space age hmm. back then the the music the contemporary music is okay but the kef mcculloch score is I, uh, uh, it's uh, i've always been immune to the charms of kef <laughs> yeah. it's always so shrill and especially mm. when paired with this shooting on video it really adds to that kind of student film feeling you yeah, get but but here, here i think is the only story where it sort of works in that, in his sort of synthesised twists on the period, music does help sort of almost glue the sci-fi into the period a, a bit mm. more, and it, it does carry on. He, he'd have been a great composer for, for something else, I'm not sure what, but it, it always kind of just sat on top of these these stories. 
to me. There are a few moments where I, I think uh, tonally the music is not appropriate to the scene and that doesn't help as well. Mm. It, th- there were a couple of bits where it felt like the old days where the, the score would just be written ahead of time and they'd just try to dump it into whatever bits seemed mildly appropriate. And I know that won't have probably been the case with this, but um, but there were times when I just sort of recoiled when the when the music restarted and the, the, I thought the chase music that I don't know the name of, you know, the Dick classic. Barton. Oh, the Devil's Gallery. Yeah, the Devil's there you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was too much. For me. Ah, too much. Sacrilege. Mm. Best, mo- best moment in it. I don't know. At the time, I remember thinking that was like, Phys- I can remember physically recoiling mm. as a as a embarrassed sixteen year old. Ah, but now I, th- I thought that was the best moment in it. Now <laughs> it's like, oh well, you you might as well do something, mightn't you? You might <laughs> give it something, mm. do mm. something different. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, or just more, or just more stabs of his s- mm. space. Yeah, there's a slowly moving spacecraft music, mm. which is what I always think of, whether it's the Dalek shuttle or that cyber ship or, or this Bannerman mm. ship, sort of spaceship slowly rising into the sky. Dang, dang, mm. dang, dang. Oh. <laughs> uh, so, so I guess something else that tells you it's 1987 is that uh, the, the evil bounty hunter is South African. Um, mm. you know, it, 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 it's the era before, I suppose, Mandela was re- released, and it became okay to be South African again. So was Malcolm Cole, though. Oh yes, and, and apparently the the Afrikaans accent was the the guy from the Flying Pickets' own idea. Okay, and if the production subtitles would be believed, he also suggested using his false teeth as the transmitter. To um, <laughs> and that one was nixed. <laughs> What, like talking to them uh, like a little yeah like a little puppet uh, like a not quite sure uh, how that would work like Rod Hull and Emu and his, uh, oh, he likes you <laughs> I I think he's he's good I it's it brings me to to Ray that 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 end of part one and and this thing about how Ray might have been a companion which is um uh, and one link between the two stories that we're we're watching is is it strikes me how pretty she is in the same way as Jenna Coleman is pretty is the same very mm. doll like beauty and she she looks absolutely gorgeous but it would have been great to she's she's very subtle she's subtle compared to Sophie coming in to sort of take that part mm. and and particularly against Mel when you reach end of part one and over there the baby is hatching and Mel is is doing her massive scream meanwhile we're watching uh, Mr Flying Pickett's doing is you are the traveler in time they call the doctor sort of bit (laughs) and holding them at gunpoint ray just does a gulp she just Mm. does Mm. she just goes "Mm -hmm." you'd never notice it but set against a male scream that's kind of the final thing (laughs) of of, of the the, the episode i kind of like that girl i'd I'd like to have seen a lot Mm. more of her yeah Mm -hmm. i meant to look to find out who the actress was that she replaced i mean i found out the name but i wanted to see what else she'd been in if i knew her because the actress that was originally cast injured herself Mm. in moped training and was replaced at the last minute wasn't she and i meant to try and yes if i knew that i'd forgotten that yeah my favorite moment in the entire story which is nothing really to do with the plot is um in episode one ray's reaction to um when Billy dedicates the song to Delta instead of to her, yeah, it's nicely written. It's nicely written as well. Yeah. The way she trans just jumps on the doctor. Oh, I'd love to, and she plays it very mm. nicely. So. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's really nice. But if I, 
I've said something nice there, so I'll, I'll be unkind as well and say it's probably the only moment in the story when someone reacts like a human being. But... <laughs> yeah, th that was one of my yes. notes was that it has a frustrating tendency for the characters to just behave in a weird and jarring and unearthly way. And and it, I find that really alienating, no pun intended. People just doing <laughs> weird things that they disconnect you from, from any attempt to suspend your disbelief. When people do things and you think, well, they wouldn't behave like that in that situation. That's, a, that's an extra barrier to believing aliens and flying buses and green things. Could we have... Could we have had her and Ace? Would that have worked? A two? Mm. <laughs> Would that be too much? You can see. You I can see. So. Well, all these years, people have thought you had to choose between them. You see. Mm. You can see them working it out though, because because she walks around with a full toolkit, doesn't she? And mm. the doctor says, "Oh, mm. oh, who does that?" And 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 that feels like on the edge of something that someone might reasonably do. And then you mm. get to Ace, and she's got a metal rope ladder. And three cans of high explosive <laughs> as a everyday sort of going out gear, like the rest of us, you know, have a phone and wallet and things. Mm -hmm. She 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 packs mm -hmm. the the TNT, and 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 Ray, you might have imagined them sort of doing something like that, that that she'd have the right tool for any kind of kind of space circumstance, mm -hmm. rather than rather than the. But but you can see them going. There's just not enough about her. Would they have taken her on? Would they have tried to have played the same plots? That's that's the that's the parallel world where where there's where she's the companion, especially in the books afterwards. God, they'd have brutalized <laughs> Ray, wouldn't they? They'd have she'd have been punished for being nice in the new adventures. <laughs> and that motorbike would have been travelling through time with Doctor Who in the sidecar, wouldn't it? It would probably have been sentient by the time they were finished. <laughs> Vincent would be travelling. And this is my new companion, Vincent. That would be, that would be what they'd do. Um, she, um, she, she could have, um, in, in um, Remembrance of the Dalek, she, she could have taken the Dalek apart panel by panel. Oh, you can't do that with the Emperor Dalek, Doctor. It's just too big. Sorry, that was my... South African well, again. It's it was funny. very big in the very big in It's about as convincing as hers. So yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> it's funny that uh, yeah, Paul, you're the big Finnish. You're the big Finnish guy. Why have they not brought her back? You'd think that was good a question. Yeah, you'd think that was a box set waiting to be happened. Go and pick oh, up. Oh, that's a thought. She she was eighteen then, wasn't she? So in the present day, she'd be she'd be in her eighties. Right, they could get her in oh, torture. In a, oh, in the, sorry, in the present day, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Dame Dame Sean Phillips, I think, mm. would be the uh, uh, the the Welsh actress of her age. I think she'd mm. be right up in a torchwood box set. <laughs> well, I'll yeah. get on the blower to Jason Hay Gallery for all the people for all the people jest that Big Finish have picked on every tiny minor side character mm. and given them a sixteen bar box set. It's not. It's not entirely true, and they've missed some really obvious ones over the years. And mm. I would have thought she yeah. was well up there. I, I would do a, I'd theme it and have a box set of the almost companions. I think with the the actors in general, you know, I think I think pretty much everyone plays it, pictures it right. It's just such a shame that you know, the, at the centre of the the supposed love story that you're meant to that's meant to be the heart of this is Billy and Delta, who are the worst planks Ugh. in the whole thing. Insipid. <laughs> Yeah, Before we they, make me, they make me turn green. I don't, oh, sorry, that's a terrible. <laughs> I mean, don't know why I shout at you for that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fascinated by their their date in the countryside, uh, but before we get to that, I think we need to tackle the matter of the baby <laughs> that, <laughs> that they take. That's a bold, 
choice. It really all <laughs> falls down. Oh my and, God. And, and someone, <sighs> and also, but it's all been thought about so well as well because because they plan that baby grow because it has the same hexagonal <laughs> bee pattern that the grown up costumes have. So someone was given that job in a few weeks to sort of knit that. <laughs> Uh, and so they 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 went in fully planning to do it that that way but you can't it's one of those kind of elephant in the room kind of decisions you know that you can't ever square you can't ever let anyone see it who might know you for fear (laughs) they'll hold it against you they'll hold it against you personally you know it's it's a real it's really like don't come in now mum that baby (laughs) It strikes me that could have been very sinister. Um, I've only just re- remembered Royal Jelly, the uh, Tales of the Unexpected episode. Oh, yes. So, you know, in the original, mm. <laughs> I was going to say the dark version of this, the, the version where this was as serious as Dragonfire, mm. that could have been very, um, very worrying. It's just worrying in a different way, isn't it, what we actually get? The, the, the story's desperately trying to be fun and funny. I, I don't mean to put a damper on it, but I generally don't find it either. But a jump cut to a green baby is one of the funniest things I have ever seen. And I'd completely forgotten it was coming. And it absolutely killed me. And I and I missed about five minutes of this. I had to rewind it because it, it made me laugh so much. I had a coughing fit. And I had to rewind it and rewatch. Oh, it's wonderful, wonderful stuff. Yes. Yeah. I want to rewatch it right now. And Billy's feelings for Delta only deepen at this point. <laughs> Obviously, he's fancied her across the dance floor, as many a, a man has. Mm. And, and often they find out that they have a child and maybe that, that changes his view about if he's going to make his move. He doesn't come in and see this particular child. But really, at that moment, that's when the, the real love's arrow hits him somehow. Mm. And then they go on that weird date in the countryside mm. and he is just too into it. He's so, she's st- she's mm. saying stuff like, "If I can get the hatchling to the brood planet, I can take the case to judgment," which is quite a line. There's a lot going on there, from hatchling to a, a tribunal of some kind, just in one line. And he's just, "Well, anything I can do, uh, just tell me, Delta." Like she's asked him to get the car seat ready for a trip to Quicksave. <laughs> and then later, she shows him the the royal the compound which is in in blister packs so it's obviously like like it's available on prescription on shimmer <laughs> and she's got the last few and he <laughs> sort of eyes it up and and it's just slightly badly edited it stays on him a bit too long so he looks really <laughs> weird <laughs> and, as, as he looks down at it and then takes it and puts it in his jacket or something doesn't he mm. and then later she says <laughs> it's my favorite it's the bathos of it you haven't been eating that have you <laughs> i had to delta <laughs> <laughs> you haven't been eating that. I had to. I wanted to start buzzing like like um, <laughs> mm. Timothy West until the unexpected. Yeah, and that's the thing. It is all quite sinister. I'm not sure quite what's. Yeah, you can definitely put a very sinister spin on what's going on with with. Uh, try. Yeah, Chris Clough keeps it light though. Hmm. Yes, he does. I was trying to segue into the directing. Hmm. I was trying to get somebody else to talk about the the directing. So I think me. it's. It moves along very well in part one. The rest of it, kind of, they've they put together the kind of stuff they've they've got. Uh, mm. 
I feel like the location work brings out the worst in him because he just seems to get into this pattern of sticking the camera yeah. in the corner of a room as far you know. You can imagine Cameron pressed up with his back against the wall and just stands there. It has a Richard Martin keeping quality. Keeping everyone too. in frame. Yeah. The action sequence at the start and the stuff at the spaceport, the tall tall gates are, 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 are all good, but yeah, some of it when you get down to the there's long unbroken shots of just four people standing and it's it's mm. just like the worst. 60s on the night Doctor Who recording session. It's weird. Mm. I mean, and then it's not not unknown to have four people standing in a line these days. <laughs> no, well, if it's only four, that would be the unusual thing nowadays. Seven or eight. Now you're talking. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty impressive stunt fall in in the, that, those early scenes, isn't it? Yeah, just like the old days. Mm. So, so is this? Did somebody said it, that it's a verdant planet or something of the Shimmerons, but it's got a big quarry in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> no, the, uh, yeah. Malcolm Cole wrote it as a verdant planet. Bullman is just jealous of their quarry. He's going the away. idea was <laughs> that that was the allure of the Shimmeron planet was mm. that it was beautiful, uh, and and they just went. That's the second doing, time in this series because Time and the Rani is supposed to be set on a lush jungle planet, and oh, yeah. um, the director mm. said that's boring. No, if I, if I said mm. it in the if there are trees, nobody will believe it's another plant, and it's not Earth. So I'm set it in a quarry, and then they will be fooled. Right, and bees as well. I suppose if it was a verdant world, that explains their kind of hive sort of thing, where they're going around like sort of tending all the 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 beautiful alien flora. Is, it, is there any universe explanation for why the Shimron don't men don't have mouths? Uh, <laughs> or is that a production flaw? I genuinely don't know. Is that going to happen to Billy? I wonder. That would be a terrible, <laughs> I hope so. terrible, terrible waste of a very pretty mouth. But <laughs> it, it does it does go a bit strange for him because he's he's now it seems to be the only male, and there seems to be only mm. two two females, one of which is oh, the daughter. Yes. And also, mm. there's a line where sort of Garonwi says, and I don't know whether this is supposed to point towards this, that says once the new queen comes along, the old queen sort of left behind mm. is it the intent that he thinks he's off with delta but he's really going to have to be kind of breed a whole new species with this with <laughs> her teenage so daughter is, is that is that what's is that is that what's happening I, i'm not tonka I, tonka's I, sticking up the honka i'm not <laughs> sure but he deserves yeah. it yeah I, I, I hadn't thought that far ahead i know this is a normal science fiction <laughs> problem where if one member of a species survives, somehow everything's all right. They can carry. Mm. They've got a future, and you don't mm. have to be. He's got a quarry to fill. He's got <laughs> a new to restock. <laughs> all the males are are green and blobby, and all the women look like human models. Is that right? Maybe really, really beautiful. It dilutes things a little bit when you've got shapeshifters in one scene that turn into humans, and then you've also got an alien race that happen to look like humans, but they're also members of that alien race that don't look like humans, because then you're in a very similar setup to the Navarros before and after being on the bus, and, and you, you, you're you sold this idea that they're green creatures that then m sort of metamorphose into normal-looking mm. adult human females, whilst presumably the men do the reverse? I don't know. Well, we, they, they, they do show you a man, and then they, they there is a speech yeah. in the story about the difference between queen bees and sort of drones mm -hmm. and soldiers, and you think so maybe that's what the man is. And then Billy, now thinking about it, he turns to look like like the woman. Is he is he becoming a queen? 
when the doctor <laughs> says when the doctor says um you have to be careful with interspecies something or other he says he even warns mm. them is that it is is that the the end of the species now because he's i don't know he's gone the wrong way is, made... is he going green no he's going is, silver is it, well, shimmery kind of shimmery mm. shimmery whatever which brings me on to a minor tangential point shouldn't it be chimerons isn't isn't the point that yes. it's based the on the chimera is how to say chimera <laughs> yeah I, I, I assumed because the chimera was a two-part animal. I assume mm. that the idea is that it's it's named after the chimera. Oh, yeah. So I assume it should all be chimerons. It's the chameleons from the um, from the horror. <laughs> it's the Rock chameleon version, factor. It? Yeah. The chameleon factor. Tom Baker never heard the word chameleon before. There's a lot of words mm. he'd never heard before. But he has a lot of words I've never heard before. So. Gallifrey. Yeah. <laughs> he, I, I think he just deliberately. Does them sometimes just to, <laughs> just to annoy Paddy Russell. Just to, yeah. <laughs> she yeah. said, "The way I want you to do this, Tom, I want you to rush through the door and say chameleon." I mean, he was like, <laughs> "No, no, no!" When you watch a lot of archive TV from the sixties and seventies, it's astonishing how many words presumably well-educated actors have never heard before. It's like it's like another world. Mm. I have. You no sometimes for you. meet it in real life, though. You, you you work alongside someone for like twenty years, and then suddenly they say something. <laughs> random and you mm. ask them once and then you think they can't really mean that <laughs> i had one recently which was sieg sieg for segway <laughs> that's so weird someone i was literally said, about to oh, say really? the exact someone, same someone said thing it just siegs between the two music and i said what yes so, you know i was going but to say my one perfectly. embarrassing example i won't say who it is it's my girlfriend <laughs> and she says sieg or said sieg until she was yeah. corrected but she now humorously says sieg yeah. To parody herself. Are we convinced that it, that it never was Seek? I don't know. <laughs> I, I've always said to her, to reassure her, she tends to do it quite a lot, that it, it's often a byproduct of people being well-read rather than uh, people like us who yes. were brought up on television. Yes. That's the excuse I used the other week when I roundly abused the entire cast of the play I'm in for pronouncing, <laughs> for pronouncing the word analogous, analogous, or, uh. or more to the point, they were saying analogous, and I said, "It's analogous. Are you insane? Nobody's analogous." And, and um, yet we say analogy. I mean, the nowadays language people is... have a little machine in their pockets that can instantly tell, uh, prove you wrong to your face. And I was much chastened. <laughs> my my friend Tim, who was basically he didn't watch TV ever, and he was one of the most well-read people that I knew. Uh, he was a big fan of Michael Crichton. <laughs> and uh, and I took great pride in in making fun of him, but it was it was a byproduct of how well uh, well read he was and how he didn't rot his brain with stupid programs about green babies or <laughs> well, things like the the ribos operation or yes or logopolis yep. or any of those ones that we, uh, that we oh logopolis that, that reminds me yeah it's still ribos to it's me it should be. Yes, absolutely. They're, they're perverse, some of these pronunciations they came it, up with. It'll, it'll never stop being ribos to me either. <laughs> well, I said Gary Gillat for years. So. Yep. Okay. And Toby Hadoki. Toby Hadoki, <laughs> but it should be that, because that trips off the tongue very well. Isn't it? it does, yeah. <laughs> well, you can't have a hard G and a soft G. That's just... No, that's t- just tell, tell that to a lifetime stammerer, tell that to a lifetime stammerer <laughs> particularly as well, who had to, uh, had to explain mm. these two things. It's just not nice. So, so anyway. talking of lit- literary stuff, I mean, we've, we've actually got almost a, a, 
a real literary illusion here where where Gavrock is is hoist on his own petard. Mm. He actually gets mm. thrown up in the air by that sonic thing we do do what so. He is. It's very odd, you know, just a bit of a token sort of trap that's put there for him to be hoist on though, isn't it? It's not real. Mm. Because the doctor arrives and sees it. <laughs> <laughs> deals with it and then turns it on again so it's uh yeah. this needn't have been any more any more terminal than the trap they laid with the honey i mean they could have just you know it's just given them earache and they could have staggered off and they could have and the, our heroes needed yet another ploy mm. and it could have gone on for weeks this story yeah, it's, it, it is Chekhov's sonic cone really isn't it mm. a classic literary device we have to be grateful there's not a scene with at the end with Sylvester on the electric guitar mm-hmm. <laughs> blowing the bannermen across the you know mm. imagine him on the rooftop doing the oh, full yes. you know <laughs> Merlin saw the, the, the Excalibur mm-hmm. acting <laughs> yeah so we've been saved that yes. yeah instead we get Fury from the Deep all over again I suppose mm. with, uh, mm. amplified screams or, 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 or singing yeah. or something sort of random observation Yes, go on. Mm-hmm. It only struck me just now how odd it is that there's so many singers in this story who don't get to sing. I mean, I'd already noticed that Mel doesn't get to, Bonnie Langford doesn't get to do any singing or dancing, but neither mm-hmm. Stubby K or even the bloke from the Flying Pickets. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Mm. They should have just said, only you singing. Yeah. <laughs> to him, only you. But Billy does with his pretty mouth. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to the Sonic Cone, though, unfortunately, the, the problem was watching that. Oh, God. Having had our discussion about the demons a um, couple of months ago, whenever it was, I just wanted to know how they did the exploding stick <laughs> trick with the Sonic Cone. I think it's just a jump cut because I think uh, I don't think you see the stick go anywhere near the pyrotechnic. Nothing it's so more, ingenious as it's more convincing no. than the amazing jump cut when the bus explodes. Hmm. I've been completely bewildered by that the first time I saw it. <laughs> the bus, the bus vanishes, and the the flower mm. bed gives off a little wisp of smoke. A bit rent a ghost. Here's another random observation: on the making of documentary, they show that they've they've hoisted that bus for that for that effect when it la- sorry not when it dis- not when it blows oh, up when the, it lands. The they've hoisted it up about mm. twenty feet in the air on a crane, which must yeah. have cost a bit, and they drop it, wow. and it looks really spectacular. For some reason, Chris has zoomed in, so it looks like it's dropped from about two feet. Mm, and yeah. does not. It just looks like you know somebody's jumped on the rear end and bounced it a bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what a shame! What a what a shame that could have been really good, Chris. <laughs> actually, in, in keeping with the disappearing bus, it would have been good when Gaffer went actually, and it would have been in keeping with the story if there'd just been his smouldering boots left behind. Some yeah. slightly comical. Yeah. They needed like a tone that. meeting to make sure that. Yeah. Mm. Some so. freshly roast ham. Rather than, <laughs> oh. in, more, in more ways than one. In more ways than one, yes. Yeah. Honey roast. Did you do honey that? Roast. Honey <laughs> roast. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. just, just checking. Oh. Excellent. Oh. That's it. That's it. This was the first time I realised what was weird about Gavrock's hands. I always thought that the actor just had really weird skin, mm. and it was only this time <laughs> I realised that the, 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 the bannermen have webbed fingers. And that that his weird wrinkly skin is prosthetics. Right. All Don Henderson's idea, apparently. Really? Yep. This is this story was yeah. Everyone was throwing ideas into the ring. I remember having a, a spirited conversation with John Nathan Turner when when we ran his memoirs in Doctor Who magazine. We'd meet each month. Each month was a season, and and we'd have a lunch, 
and I'd sort of go through some general questions of the sort of things that people would want to hear about from that season, the sort of the fan you know the fan the fan points of contention and um he he'd listen ignore them and then go and write some <laughs> some stories of his turns that he got on with but um but I can remember <laughs> saying to him that I liked it it was a great cast and everything else but I went oh what a shame about Belinda Maine and um John if you ever offended him uh, you, you you knew when you did it, it was like that dinosaur with the frilly neck in Jurassic Park, he, he would rise up, and you'd go, "Oops, Gary." He would say, "There are no bad actors; there are just miscast actors." And then his copy came in for his write-up about Delta. He wrote about the cast. Some people with small minds would consider have, have, have suggested that she was not up to this, and then goes on a rant about how she was, of course, marvelous. And uh, I thought that's me told, and I cut the whole chunk. <laughs> but uh, power the editor's pen. That's my that's my Belinda Main story. Does anyone but, know anything uh, about her? Has she shown up anywhere else? She's a uh, yes. You can go and uh, have your your limbs rubbed by her in Wells in Somerset. She is a. <laughs> Uh, a very successful physiotherapist, yes, uh, who has worked with the uh, Olympic team and everything else. So you can go mm. and get it. Uh, Let's just so, leave that hanging there. So well, I know what they say about Wikipedia, but uh, there's an allegation on Wikipedia that she's in Wonder Woman 1984 playing someone's secretary. But if so, that would appear to be her first acting role in about 25 years. So I suspect that's, uh, um, I suspect that's either someone being mischievous or. Mischievous. Um. <laughs> <laughs> My friend Paul Vise tells me that her father was a very good actor, called somebody like Reggie Main or something, and he was in uh, some episodes of Cagney and Lacey, amongst other things, and was very good in that. So, oh, so okay. she's from a acting acting gene in her family that clearly skips mm-hmm. a generation. She's just got to have the <laughs> acting jelly. <laughs> do, we, do we know why Stubby K went for such a small and part that didn't particularly seem to require his skills? Was he was he doing a Oh, I've forgotten the name of that bloke from Silver Nemesis. We over, over here to watch Wimbledon and just thought he Anton fitted in. That's the one. Mm. And he said Anton Lesser. That would have been... What a, what a good save. Mm. Imagine if I'd said Anton Lesser. <laughs> oh. Um, no. <laughs> Do they fly no, him in, especially no. for this? Hmm? I'm not sure. I don't remember ever no, reading. I've, of course, as a child, I had no sense of who he was. I only dimly have a sense of it now, really. Was he doing some West End show at the time? I have some vague, very vague recollection. He might have been doing some West End musical. Well, I hope so. At the time. And so... Normally one of us does some research beforehand. What's, what's going on this week? I, I rely on that. <laughs> Which one of us is it? Charles uh, and Gav. I've exhausted all my facts. All the Gs normally mm. do research. I mean, but this week it's only Gary. <laughs> is, is there anything else anyone wants to say about this? I was finding myself frustrated by the um, cliched way of writing science fiction in that suddenly 
aliens can just do different things. They just added, oh, they 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 can they can do this singing, this scream. It could be a warning cry. It could be a defensive cry. Suddenly, she's got hypersonic thingies built into her ears, and she can telepathically detect the bees. And that's in mm. one sentence, and then it's just gone. And it it feels like a slightly naive way of writing science fiction stuff of just sort of throwing ideas in, and, and most of them are inconsequential. Whereas the two or three critical ones need to be sort of seeded better through the story. We have a lot of that these days, though, don't we? I mean, Flux was, oh, well, Flux, Flux yeah. was just a pile-up of, of, oh, and then there's a bit of this, and then the, <laughs> uh, and then there's a population inside a man, and then there's a, a shield, a <laughs> shield like of, of things, and then there's this, it? and then mm. there's some tunnels that lead to different time zones, and and yeah. this and this and this and this and this. So it's deeply unsatisfying. So so here it feels like an, an almost. <laughs> An almost organic, natural, <laughs> perfectly reasonable, yeah. uh, foreshadowed example. I think having mentions, having sort of mentioned the space age, space age stuff, and the Heidi High, well, we haven't really touched on Heidi High as such, but it's sort of an obvious point of reference. The only other thing I was going to say is that I don't mind the kind of schlocky sci-fi side of it because there's also, you could argue that he's writing a bit of a fifties B fifties B movie sci-fi. Um, plot should have, been, should have been giant killer there. bees in that case, but yeah, it's but like... well, you know, with the woman, the, the the fantastically beautiful alien woman, and the you know, mm. in a in a jumpsuit and you know, hypnotizing, hypnotizing men and what have you. But I just wish they kind of lent into it a, a bit more in that case. But I think that's the whole, as you, it's the it's the tone meeting. I think that's that's sort of what's missing here. (laughs) Can we say it was ahead of its time and if they did it now, Mm. they would probably take all this wonderful potential and fully realise... Well, I won't say now, I didn't mean... Mm. (laughs) Recently. (laughs) Not now, it wouldn't. In the modern era. Yeah. But but it's quite like that. That that line that I I made fun of before, if I can get the hatchling to to the brood planet, Mm. and and, and all that sort of stuff, does, does feel like you could really imagine them doing this B story... Mm. now in the last few years and and, and they would have just done all of that completely <laughs> it would have been on that that planet where where there's just go, just going you know it would really 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 have just done the the, the mm. b bit the b plot as it were and they, they should have um, called it the b, b plot, plot. <laughs> yeah you know what this, what this is actually i just realized what this is actually missing is a potty shally made <laughs> no but because because this because of the period and and the Strictures, not so much the strictures under which Doctor Who was made, but the, maybe the strictures that J and T imposed on it. It's the fact that the fact that Billy and Delta don't snog at any point. Do they? They don't, do they? Do they not? Do I they don't. Not? No hanky panky in the holiday park. No, I don't think they. Not 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 on screen exactly. And then, a that would be great, and b it would be an opportunity for her to say, so, show me some more of this earth thing called kissing. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. jobs are good. And, um, Far too recently, I realised the title of this story is a play on Echo and the Bunnymen. Yeah. But what they get is Delta and the Bannermen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a play on that in the same way that Arachnids in the UK. It's not that close, is it? No, but also, I mean, as a, as a title structure, we just had Time and the Rani, so mm. something and something else just felt completely ordinary. Mm. I, I love the fact that they were worried that Delta and the Bannermen sounded too obtrusively like a pun band name 
Mm. And they w- wanted to change it back to whatever it was, Planet of the Shimmer. Flight of the Shimmer. Flight of the Shimmer. Mm. Yeah, because they, they had misgivings about that title, mm. which was a pun I failed to get. Well, if you hadn't realised that Time of the Time of the Running is a play on Time of the Con- Time of the Conways, and that's and understanding that and unlocking the whole JVP sleep pastiche in Time of the Rani makes you look at the story in a whole different light. Is uh, if you hadn't realised that, then I can't really help you. <laughs> what, what, well, you, you, you can tell us about that some other time. Yeah, park that. <laughs> no, I'm gonna. Shit, I've dug my, I dug myself a hole now. <laughs> yeah. Real police box. Oh yes, yes. yes. Oh, One of the very few. Yeah. Also, completely preposterous. I mean, it's a metropolitan police box mm. in Wales. They didn't have them in England, uh, but it uh, parked on a country lane. Mm, yeah. <laughs> what did they think they were for? Yeah. Doggers, I suppose. <laughs> Perhaps it's the fugitive doctor passing through or something, and it isn't a real yeah, box. It's yeah. the only thing. If it's yeah. if it's not supposed to be there, then um... Pepsi the dog. I always like to see Pepsi the dog. Ah, yes. Mm. Whose career spans eighties TV. <laughs> With a longer CV than Billy and Delta, <laughs> I would imagine. Mm. Is it the only Doctor Who story to contain the words Alan Key? I'd like to think so. Yes, yes. I mean, I mean, I'd like you, to think you, so. You get the Van Allen the, belt, but but the yeah, there's no, there's no other Alan Keys. There's yeah. the house on Allen Road. That's the, that's the other thing, and uh, and that's it for Alan's. Yeah. Oh, uh, Alan Bennion, of course. The uh, Alan, yes, that's yeah. it. And and Tim Key. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Yes, excellent. I was once paid three hundred and twenty pound to write the labels for a three D cutaway drawing of the Nostalgia Trips coach, and Good it, Lord. yeah, it took me half an hour. So I think that was the best earnings I ever made in the Doctor Who field. I think it was like <laughs> ten pounds. I think ten pounds a minute. Uh, I think. <laughs> I think it's you're hard pressed to earn anything in the attendant industries at mm. that rate. I imagine even the that doctors haven't managed that. So, so that was a very happy, happy <laughs> half half hour while I, I jotted down Hellstrom Fireball Engine and, and the like. I, I did the artwork for that. Oh well, there you go. Oh, did did yeah. you get paid the same <laughs> amount? That I tell you what, that. that, oh, wow. that, that I, I was going to say, Gav's still hoping to get three hundred pounds cumulative earnings in the Doctor Who. <laughs> that uh, that DVD files magazines. That was a golden time. Oh, oh, it was that nice. was a golden. Nice. No one ever read it. No one ever saw it. But mm-hmm. it was it, for 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 <laughs> price per word. It was mm. it was pure gold. I tell you. And anyway, yeah. these things are important to the, the more avaricious. Yeah. Well, yes, part work industry. We all look back and think of how much better, it, how much better it paid it was. Yes, <laughs> working yes. in publishers. Working in publishers just generally. Yes, <laughs> a constant process of looking back and thinking, oh God, things were so much better paid in the past. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, I'll I'll finish off by saying, it was twenty eight years between nineteen fifty nine and nineteen eighty seven. It's now thirty five years ago. Good so, Lord. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Look, do, do you do you want to grab five minutes before we go and talk about the next? I think I may need a stiff drink after that. <laughs> yeah. Same. Then again, you might cut into two anyway. Uh, well, that is becoming mm. the um, standard. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime, here's a clip 
from my other podcast. Oh, Richard, you're just in time for the annual If It's Hurting, It's Not Working finance audit. Oh, hello, Emily. Crikey, that sounds scary. It's OK, there's nothing to worry about. It's just a series of formal checks and balances. Shouldn't take more than a couple of hours. Uh, I thought you were HR these days. Yeah, I am. But it's a small business, Richard. We all have to wear several hats, right? Expenditure? Well, well, mostly it's been free. Mm, I don't think that's true. I thought you told me that we were at the end of the free period. Well, OK, yeah, OK. So it's, so it's $9 a month for hosting. Yeah, and you paid for the theme music. OK, true. So that was another £20. But, but that's all we spent. Well, don't forget there's our free labour, but I'll overlook that for now. So what incomes have we actually had? Uh, nothing. Uh, uh, sorry, nothing at all? No, none. Right. OK, so it's costing us money every month. We're working for free and there's no income. What exactly is the business case for this podcast? Well, how about it's fun and we're giving something back? Mm, okay, I'll let you have that one. So you better hit the theme music quickly before I change my mind. Hello and welcome to If It's Hurting, It's Not Working, our podcast all about work, why we work, how we work and what makes a great job. In this episode, our theme is going to be around money and how that intertwines with mental health and how it also plays a part in the role of our working lives. Work is the main and sometimes the only source of income that we have. And while money isn't everything, it's important. And right now, we're all seeing an increased pressure on our household expenses, particularly with rising interest rates and increasing fuel and food costs. So we're going to talk about our experience with money, how to have a healthy relationship with it, how to find a job that pays you enough of it and where things can go wrong. So let's get on to the subject of money. So I have a rule of thumb in my life, which is that I'm not really motivated by money, but I am motivated by a lack of money. <laughs> uh, and, and I guess to explain that, it's more obvious in its absence than in its presence. In those rare blissful occasions when I've had you know, a nice full bank account, I don't sort of go around feeling extra happy, but I guess in those occasions, and we'll talk about at least one of them soon, where I haven't had enough, it's almost all you can think about at times, it, and it really becomes kind of crushing. But there's also shame involved. There's a thing in our society, I think, that says you ought to be able to cope with this stuff if you're an adult. And once you're in a bit of a mess, you don't really want to have to admit to anyone that that's the situation. With mental health and situations like this, you always feel like, oh, my God, I'm the only one going through this. I'm the only one experiencing this right now. And it can feel like a very lonely place. But then when you do reach out for that help and you speak to the the, the experts that can get you out of the situation, it's always I don't know if you found it, but it was quite comforting. So it's a steep learning curve sometimes, I think, for people, especially around yeah. this subject area and the, the impact that it can have on your mental health. And I think you're right. I, th I think you're right in saying that when, when you have a visceral experience of it, then it makes it much easier for you to understand the trap. But yeah, if we can help somebody from falling into it, then then that would be great too. Yeah, so, so I think building on the thought you just had, um, which has also now gone from my head. 